So actually, I want to go on to Atif's case. Thank you so much, actually, Neil, for allowing me to present this patient like Ken's patient. This is really the tumor board for this guy. Very nice 61-year-old man I saw a couple of times already in 10 days for the first time. While hiking in the mountains of North Carolina, he noticed that he couldn't go as high as he did every year for 20 years. He came back down to South Florida, saw his friend gastroenterologist, who told him, you know, I will do a chest x-ray. Chest x-ray showed some opacity in the right lung base. He told him, you have a walking pneumonia, gave him antibiotics. He didn't respond. Subsequently, he did a CAT scan, and he found consolidation and the pleural-based masses in almost two-thirds of the right lung. Very minimal effusion, and nothing in the left lung, nothing in the mediastinum. The patient is a non-smoker. At that time, the gastroenterologist sent him to have an ultrasound-guided aspiration of the pleural fluid. Didn't really have a lot, although they recovered around 50 cc's, atypical cells, mesothelial in origin. He was sent to a thoracic oncology surgeon who did VATS and took really a big chunk of the tumor and confirmed it is uh, malignant pleural mesothelioma by a zillion immunohistochemical stains. At that time, the patient went up to Memorial Sloan Kettering, where he knew somebody there. They gave him four cycles of neoadjuvant chemotherapy, initially platinum pamitrex. He didn't do well on the cysts, then they changed it to carbo. They finished the four cycles, tolerated it not really very well. At the end of December 07 now, they did a right pneumonectomy. The doctor told him, wow, you really... Usually these places tell patients you are cured, like Ed told me, but they told him the chemo didn't really work pathologically. I don't really know what that means. They started him on radiation therapy in January 08. How did he tolerate the pneumonectomy? He actually did well. He stayed in the hospital around five days. He stayed in rehab for around six, seven days in New York. And then amazingly, three weeks later, they started him on radiation to the right lung. What do we know about how people tolerate pneumonectomy for mesothelioma? You know, it's really in the hands of the surgeon and assessment up front, and it's usually an extremely rigorous staging to make sure you're doing it. I had a patient once who, you know, they make you run through so many hoops, not just to see if you're fit enough, but the last step is a laparoscopy to take a look underneath the diaphragm for visible disease, and then even after that, doing biopsies, random biopsies to make sure, and actually... Everything was going well for her until the random biopsy. They didn't see anything on the diaphragm. And one of the random biopsies on the undersurface of the diaphragm came back positive with mesothelioma. So that was what excluded her. So I think the surgeries, when, because these patients are so extremely rigorously staged, come out okay in the right hands. Again, there is a definite mortality with this anywhere along the lines of what will be reported by either surgeons or in the literature between 5 and 20%, but Memorial Sloan Kettering is obviously an excellent place. Uh, MD Anderson and a few other places across the country, you just want someone with experience here. Anything new in terms of the pathophysiology or risk factors or why people get it? No, not that I know of. People have hypotheses. And, you know, the one thing I didn't want to hear come out of your mouth was sarcomatoid, you know, because that is an extremely bad variant of mesothelioma, you know, based on just behavioral characteristics. But biologically, you know, why do some people get those versus other epithelial type? We don't know. What do you ask patients and just, you know, not that it's maybe going to change your treatment, but just for completion purposes to try to pick up a history of asbestos or whatever else you would ask for mesothelioma? 
Exactly. And that's something you, you want to include is a good occupational history and the exposures. You know, mesothelioma is going to look pretty characteristic on an imaging scan. So it's going to lead you in that direction. But of course, it can be deceptive as well. So it's just important to ask about prior exposure. Tobacco is still a very important thing in the history in these folks as well, because you don't want to think someone has a mesothelioma and then find out they have non-small cell that could be treated a little differently. So just occupation or anything else? Mostly, that's where I center around, is occupational and smoking history, etc. What did he do? Yes, he absolutely was exposed for decades. He actually owns a large commercial building construction. And for decades, at the beginning, he was exposed to... His company does most of the construction of our medical campus. Is there anything you can see pathologically, asbestos particles or whatever in there that's helpful? Oh, not really. It's just as uh, Atif was saying, it's very important to get a nice piece of tissue to really make the diagnosis because if you have small FNA or small biopsies, you can really cloud your diagnosis up front. So So what happened after the pneumonectomy? He did finish, then he started radiation exactly in the middle of radiation. He started complaining of abdominal distension. Initially, it was not attended to, but subsequently it was. And he was told that he had ascites to go back down to South Florida. He saw an oncologist in Miami, and abdominal tab revealed mesothelial cells. Therefore, he had definitely... I don't think they did the biopsies, the random biopsies you talked about, Ed. He started him on gemcitabine. He received initially three weeks on, one week off. He couldn't tolerate that. Then he, two weeks on, one week off. The last dose was July 3rd. That evening, he had shortness of breath, chest pain. He was admitted to our hospital. He was found to have pericardial effusion, as well as atrial fibrillation. He underwent subxiphoid pericardial window immediately, and his arrhythmia was treated medically. And that's when I saw him the first time he was on oxygen in a horrible situation. I talked to him briefly, and then he came back to my office. That was actually a good sign. I didn't think that he would show up. He actually looks much better. He's not on oxygen. His albumin is 2.6. He has periorbital edema peripheral edema, tried to maximize his diuretics. He came with his wife, very nice lady, and his daughter, who is an attorney. And the patient wants treatment, but he doesn't want chemotherapy. That's what he asked me. What's his state of mind? Oh, it's excellent. He's very calm, and he's very methodical in his questions. His daughter and his wife really probably make him more nervous than he is. He's a very calm man very intelligent, and he understands how acute his illness has been. Just in a year, literally 12 months, he progressed so fast. He doesn't want the chemo because of his experience with it? For really, the main reason is that it didn't work the first time. Although with Jim Saitabine, his wife thought that his abdominal distension decreased and did not get worse on it, but the effusion around the heart definitely is a progressive disease. Ed, what would you be thinking about right now? Actually give him some advice. And would he be willing to go travel to get research treatment? Yes, oh, absolutely. This guy will go. Actually, we're talking about alternative medicine. His daughter convinced him that there is immunotherapy program in the Bahamas. He is not really keen about that. But if we tell him there is nothing here, probably he will do that. But if we tell him there is some targeted uh, you know, anti-angiogenesis, TKI, because I talk to him about all of these things. Do you have phase one studies available to you? No, I don't. Not yet. So what would you be thinking? 
Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is that, man, you know, do you need to lose his right lung? You know, because this is a rapid recurrence. It came subdiaphragmatic, just kind of eerily how I was alluding to. That's when one of my patients did not get treated. The past is the past. We look forward. And so, you know, I don't blame him for not wanting chemo. I've had some success with gemcitabine. And although pemetrexid cis is the FDA-approved regimen, there was never a study of PEM-cis versus gem-cis. So, you know, you can't really say that it was better than that. It was better than cis. And so. people are looking at gem-pem, correct? I saw a bunch of trials when I was looking this up. And there have been mixed results with that. Some of the regimens, when they've been done in these phase twos, have been a little bit toxic. Others have been very well tolerated. So I don't know why that is. And I think with PEM now, with the whole squamous issue that's coming up, we have to start looking and categorizing patients a little more closely in these studies. Still a very good drug. You know, this is a patient where, you know, SART kinase inhibitors have been of high interest in mesothelioma. Is there any more rationale than some of the other drugs out there? No. Avastin was used previously. Hedy Kindler's reported those results. I had a patient on that study. What did, what did, did that show, that study? It didn't show much of a difference at all in treatment. Everybody got high on bevacizumab after the results of colon and then lung. So we were all anxiously awaiting to see what it would do in meso. And unfortunately, it didn't help at all in that study. Anything in terms of the anti-aesthetic effect of Bev? I heard that when we were doing our ovary series that the ovary investigators think there's something specific about Bev and ascites, like mechanically, not tumor-wise. Well, again, you could theorize a lot of things about constriction of blood vessels, etc., and capillary leakage, but I don't know anything specific from that. I mean, it's supposed to decrease the interstitial pressure inside the cell, so theoretically that could open things up and allow better drainage, but again, it's all theoretical. They all tell me about two or three patients in their practices that they've had who've had great responses, and they don't really know why. I don't know if any of you have treated enough ovary to see that. Yes, I actually have, and it actually works, even as fourth and fifth line with like weekly docetaxel amazing after almost everything has failed it responds a very specific yes yeah that's what just very cautious about the perforation right of course so sark inhibitors right so desatinib is something that's being studied again you know in an orphan disease like mesothelioma it's very difficult to get drugs from any company or access to them is very difficult so you have to go through phase one means that's what i would be thinking right away with this gentleman if you want to be treated closer to home sometimes you can get desatinib out there and treat him with that and so runs our mesothelioma program and she has a study looking at that I think, you know, other than bevacizumab, which, you know, theoretically should have made a lot of sense if it potentiates chemotherapy, but it just shows you that meso is a tough disease. I think any other biologic drugs are in play for this gentleman. I mean, if you wanted to combine desatinib or lotinib, those studies are being done. Cetuximab's out there. Any of the VEGF TKIs that might be accessed to, I think anything like that is in play with a disease like mesothelioma, because this is clearly a gentleman who wants to be aggressive. He wants to pursue things. Now, am I telling people to go out and start writing prescriptions for serafinib or desatinib for these folks? No. The preference would be to put them on a study so that we can see truly whether there is a result that is favorable or not. But you know, but, I mean, this is, is this such just a, empiricism thrown out by, or is there anything in the biology of mesothelioma that would make you think any of these drugs would help? There is a belief that sarcinase is one of the controllers biologically, and that's something that has been investigated, and we do have a CTEP trial for that. But as you know, Neil, with any of these tumor types, we can create a good biological story for really any drug and then find that it doesn't work, and so we have to go back and ask ourselves why over again. 
Ken? I still get patients from New Jersey who are in the, the man, John Mansville issue. I'm sure Charlie does as well. He's got a limited lifespan. I mean, no matter what is done, I mean, we have to start knocking on his head a little bit and forget the daughter with the lawyer because I also, when I heard pneumonectomy, I almost just fell off the chair because that's even in Mount Sinai something that's extraordinarily rarely done. But certainly getting him involved with the mesothelia fund because having had his exposure, all right, there is the national fund and getting that information to that and the financials for the family because there is a significant amount of money that will help them through that. I mean, Can the you page- talk more about that? It's a fund. Well, it's a fund. When John Mansville and other companies went belly up, when they went bankrupt because of all the asbestos suits, the federal government set up a mesothelioma survivor fund. I don't know what the exact name is, but you actually submit your data and your documentation to a federal board, an arbitration board. That's why all the lawyers, you know, 1-800-MESO. And you actually do not pay them. It's like Social Security determination. If you are rejected and you go to a Social Security, a disability attorney, and they win your case and you do get to Social Security disability payments, the government pays them based on a formula that the government self have. You do not pay them any money. So it's a little bit like accident ambulance chasing, but only it's federalized. So what it is is you send it in, and then based on the patient's exposure, based on the patient's age and other aspects, you then get an amount of money. Now, whether you are a worker, whether you're an owner, whether it's Owings Corning, you know, the Pink Panther, whether it's Mansville, it's a fund for all of them, which essentially protected the companies from coming back, continuing. So Get back to the management of this patient. What do you do in practice? So, for example, one option here, this man can go to MD Anderson or some other place of excellence. What about off-protocol use of agents that are on the market, but yet clearly we don't even have any data for it, let alone an indication? Yeah, that's a tough question, Neil, because it's so empiric right now with what's on the market. You know, you could argue, well, I'm just going to try you on Erlotinib if it's covered. I would never have anyone pay out of pocket for any of these things, and if they could be accessed, fine. Cetuximab would be something that comes to mind. I don't know what baseline IGF expression is in mesothelioma, but certainly that's something being asked by everybody these days is, and does it even matter whether you express IGF or not is the other question. Why would gemcitabine and erlotinib work in pancreatic? Right. Again, there's a lot of biological rationale there. It did. It was barely positive, but I've actually treated a patient like that who had a secondary tumor that we thought was a pancreatic because it grew while the patient was on erlotinib, whereas his lung stuff was all clean. And the small little pancreatic lesion with liver metastases after it grew 70% looked more like a primary now that our radiologists were calling it. So we didn't biopsy it because this was fourth line lung therapy. So I actually added gem to his erlotinib and kept it on. And actually then he had a 60% response in that area. Now you could argue maybe it was just the gem, but I think all of you have used fourth or fifth line gem to know that you're not going to get a 60% response rate in these folks. So I have a suspicion that maybe it is pancreatic. And so, you know, these are options out there as well. Maybe adding a drug like a TKI does produce some synergism or with cetuximab, and maybe you're going to enhance the gemcitabine that was used. Again, he's not a fan of that, but maybe you can go lower on the gem and make it a little more palliative from that standpoint, easier to tolerate if he was getting benefit. Those are the things that I'd be thinking about, but I'd be filling out the consultation to our phase one group right away. How do you think he would feel about a phase one drug as opposed to maybe one of these other approaches that's got more data with it, except I, not for mesothelioma? Yeah, I think now he feels he's a little bit sick. I'm seeing him again. Actually, he asked me to talk to him because I told him I would be in this meeting and I'll be seeing it. I will talk to him. He insisted I'll call him tomorrow. 
But I think he wants something now. He doesn't really want to travel unless there is nothing here that he's going to allow his daughter to take him to the Bahamas. I actually gave him two options after I reviewed the literature very quickly and what made sense. One is a multi-TKI suitant, and the other, I don't know, I came up with bifasuzumab and like low-dose taxol. I know, I mean, you can come up with anything you really want. But, you know, I will talk to him more about the phase one. I mean, I really, I mean, we all believe in research. That's the only way you can learn, truly. This guy is not going to do well. Can I agree with you 100%? I'm just kind of curious because, you know, even though mesothelioma is not common, this clinical situation where you run out of options is very common, unfortunately. Do you think that really every oncologist should have access to phase one studies in their office? Do you think they should be in a position to offer phase one trials to their patients? From my point of view, I'm in a four-man practice. We don't have the secretarial and okay, so, secondary background. Are you offering? I would send somebody somewhere for it, but I wouldn't do it myself. Do you think that most oncologists have people they work with who are doing phase one studies that they can shuttle in, or is it more the exception? I have to say that as far as phase ones are concerned, I don't know what you tell people when you send them for phase one, but as my understanding of a phase one study is you're looking for the pharmacology of the drug. You're not looking for responses. What do you right say to patients in terms yeah. of phase one studies, Ed? Yeah, the difficulty is is that you know, you'll look online, you'll go to nci.gov, et cetera, and find a trial that you might find interesting, and it's a phase one. And let's say it's nearby. Let's say it's in Miami or up in Tampa. And you'll be so fixated on that one study. But the reality of phase one is, is that you've got to have 14 to 20 of these studies going at the same time because they open and close cohorts so quickly that by the time they go up and see a doc for this one study, you'll be told, well, you're sixth on the waiting list and the next cohort will open in three weeks. And that's why it's not feasible. That's why everybody refers to it more as a phase one program where there'll be various choices for a patient. They may not be the exact drug. And that's why I think from a community standpoint, it's important to either go cavalier and offer something that they can get a hold of. You hear all these stories of the drugs that are approved for other tumor types that they want to use. Or say, you know what, I think we have to investigate a phase one strategy, and I'm going to send you to a center that has a robust number of phase one studies that may be an option. And when you do that, you know, getting back to Steve's question here, is the possibility that they're going to benefit in terms of anti-tumor effect out on the table? I mean, there are people who that happens to, obviously it's very uncommon, or is it so uncommon that you just, it's more, well, you know, hopefully you'll help patients for the future? You know, what I always tell patients is, is that there's always one person in a study that does really well. You know, there's always one, and that's why we can cite that patient on a drug that was taken off the market six years ago that's still getting it from the company and now has to get it from the government because they stopped making it. There's always one. So I'm a believer that, you know, if you get into a study, whether the drug moves forward or not, that's a company decision, you're going to find someone, for some reason, biologically, that does really well. So you're sitting in a very, very prominent cancer institution that does a lot of research. So are you commonly sending your end-stage patients to phase one programs? Yes, there are 
two issues. One is, is that we have some of our own phase ones. For instance, we have one of the first in human IGF-1R tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Uh, this is OSI-906, and that's a study that we're really trying to enroll people into. There's two centers, one in the U.S. and one in Great Britain, and so that's a very hot target right now. We're trying to get people in there. We're very pleased with the enrollment. We're not seeing the toxicity that we've seen with some of the other drugs, but if we don't have something in our department, then certainly we do refer them over to our phase one group at MD Anderson. And again, in lung cancer, though, there's so many more choices that are coming, so we don't have to do it as early as we had to in the past. But I'm guessing that most of you are not closely tied into phase one programs. So what do you do with these kinds of patients? Do you try to give them chemo that, you know, at a low dose, that's almost a placebo? Do you try biologics? Do you send them to hospice? I'll tell you what I do with mine. If they need hospice, yes. But I explained to them, you know, if there's almost no chance that these drugs are going to work on you, why put yourself through, you know, just be comfortable, we'll give you comfort measures. So in a patient like this who's in pretty good condition right now? Yeah, I mean, he's really, in 10 I mean, days, is, he improved a lot. I mean, is he going to respond to the idea of not doing anything? And how often no, do you no, see, no. are a lot of your patients okay with not doing anything? Yes, fair enough. It depends on how you present it, too. Isaac? Neil, you know, at this point, you got to get the patient and the family members involved, you know. And really, they have to be part of the decision-making. A patient like a Teves patient, it sounds like he wants to do you know, whatever is possible to get better. So you, you have to pursue all avenues. On the other hand, you know, if you have a patient and or family members that are very gun-shy about doing anything else, then you've got to take another path. I'm kind of curious. What are you going to say to this man about what happened here? Yeah, what I'm going to tell him is that we discussed the situation, and there really are two routes to go with this. And they are not mutually exclusive unless he doesn't live long enough not to have both, that the phase one, the new target that you are doing, I will speak to him about it. About going uh, to Houston? Yes, or going to Houston, or maybe start Sutent here, get him better in the next three to four weeks, and still send him to Houston while on... Well, I don't think that will be an exclusion. Probably not. And Probably not. One thing that comes up, Neil, and you touched on this is, and so did you, Stephen, is that, you know, Everything counts to get the family members. That's very important. They have to know where the situation is. I mean, if he's in a wheelchair and on oxygen, then right. I would say don't bother because right. he's not going to be eligible to begin with. If he has no insurance, I would say don't bother because that's one of our hurdles. And the realities of clinical trials is to get people covered by their insurance companies. But patients are generally going to respond to a physician's opinion. Okay, we can always say the patient has to be empowered, their family members are pushing. I don't think the family members are pushing. I think they're supportive and they want to make sure he keeps his options open, but we get this attitude where, oh, you've got a terminal disease, and we just got done talking about all our patients who are alive for six, eight, ten years. You know, if there's still good performance status and good end organ function, the only way you're going to be able to continue to push this envelope is by trying to put people onto these studies or even have your own anecdotal reports, as you said. And, you know, this is the same attitude we encountered when we wanted to launch our battle program, which was to proactively get biopsies in any patient who was a second line, third line, or even a fourth line patient. You could use the same argument. Why would you want to go through the risk of having a pneumothorax, your third line? Let's face it, you know, it's over. No, not at all. If the physician says, you know what, this is important. Maybe this drug won't benefit you, but it will benefit someone behind you. Patients respond to it. And also they're going to learn something about your tumor. Correct. Even though we maybe won't know. And I was actually thinking about the battle study when you were presenting him. I'm just kind of curious. I know he's not eligible because this is a mesothelioma. 
But do you think this man would be open to a clinical trial which would involve a couple of biopsies? Yes, I think he would. That's my sense, he's, too. He, I mean, no, he's you know, if you think about you know, having the option of getting a couple biopsies and trying a new agent in a clinical trial situation, as opposed to what's really going to happen, which is you're going to give him something and, and then we won't be able to get any data from it. If you look him into the eyes and he perceives you believing in it, you're absolutely right. He will really do it. You know, luckily, he has the resources. Therefore, that's not going to be an issue. And the family, you are right. I mean, the family, they want the best for him. When I say, you know, they were pushing... I don't think it's wrong. I don't want people to convince people to be in the studies. That's different. But, you know, I think it's so important not to just take the route of least resistance. You know, I think we don't want to do any harm, but I think even in breast cancer now, I mean, people would say, oh, you know, maybe, maybe 20 years ago and when breast cancer patients didn't live 10 years, you know, we would say, okay, we're out. But, you know, they lived that long and biologically something allows them to do that. Again, the odds are very much behind this patient right now. It's stacked against him. But you know what? A year from now, let's see what's happening. You know, the, also the idea of introducing morbidity, you know, and the idea that when this man dies and you look back over the period of time that he had since his diagnosis, I mean, he went through a pneumonectomy. That's, you know, major morbidity that interfered with his last, whatever, it's going to be a year of life. And so I think that's another issue. I mean, Sutent's not necessarily an easy drug. It could make him miserable. It's a really vexing situation. I don't think we've ever talked about it on this series, but I'm glad we got into it today.